0: Acts chapter nine. If you'll make your way there, let me give you a few introductory comments. First, the song: "God's grace and mercy can make the vilest sinner clean." Uh, there's a purpose for us singing that song, and that's the case. The case being, there is no more uh, there's no clearer, uh, dramatic display of free sovereign grace than Acts chapter nine where we see the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. What we're reminded of is that that's how you came to know him. The application, the reason Luke uses so much ink and time. uh, He gives so much time to Paul's conversion for a reason. And again, as we go through Acts, and as you read Paul's 13 epistles, you're going to hear him repeatedly speak of his own conversion experience. And so it really speaks to us as well in our conversion of how you came to be his. We talked about the pre-conversion, Paul or Saul, how that he was breathing out murderous threats, breathing out threats and murder. Remember, he was when it says breathing out, it's really inhaling. Before you exhale, you inhale, and that's what he's doing. His the whole atmosphere of his life was to persecute those of the way. Luke actually gives us a little play on words here. If you remember, down in verse 2, uh, chapter 9, verse 2, and, and ask him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, and then Luke gives us this play on words in verse 3. Now, as he went on his way, there's no doubt that Luke is doing that. He's strategic. He's a physician. Uh, He is giving us this understanding of Paul is going on his way, but God also has his plan. And as he is on his way, the Lord knocks him off his horse. As the old hymn says, O mighty love, arrest this man. No clearer display anywhere in the Bible of free sovereign grace as he overwhelms Saul. Saul's not carrying a gospel track in his pocket. Even the Lord Jesus doesn't give him an opportunity to say, well, I'm not sure if I want to do this or not. Just knocks him off his horse. And there's no question that Christ's words were emblazoned in Paul's heart forever. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And so, in encountering the living Christ, he goes blind. Last week's sermon, God saves an enemy. uh, The risen Christ confronts Saul. This day, we're going to begin reading in verse 10, and we see that the risen Christ commissions Paul. So in 1 through 9, it's this incredible conversion, pre-conversion, encounter with the living Christ, which we learned last week that you can't be saved without encountering the risen Christ, right? And so today, it's more of the commissioning of Saul and how God is going to use him. Remember, he has physical blindness, but he also has spiritual blindness. Blindness. He's aware of the fact that he knows all the laws. He's a Pharisee of Pharisees. He's a Hebrew of Hebrews. He's memorized gigantic blocks of Old Testament Scripture. We know this. But yet, God curses him. If you don't believe that, look at Deuteronomy 28. If you are unfaithful to the covenant that God has given, the Bible says at noonday you will grope around in darkness. Deuteronomy 28. Paul is living that out. Can you imagine how he feels? I I knew it all. Read uh, Philippians 3 in his autobiography. I, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees, Hebrew of Hebrews, as far as the law, blameless in my understanding of what the law is, Paul was saying. But God says if you reject Jesus, the only mediator between you and me, then you're under the covenant curse. Thus is true with all people today. If you reject Jesus as Lord, there's no way to the Father. There's no way to salvation. That uh, puts an end to pluralism and universalism. That there are many ways uh, to God. That's not true. It's only through the Lord Jesus Christ, period. So Saul's blindness would be a terrifying parable to him of the real estate of his heart. He was zealous, he was religious, he had all the traditions of his father, yet he was under the curse of covenant infidelity. Why? Because he had rejected God's only mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. Saul would drink no food, he would eat no food, drink nothing for three days, which I think is evident of the fact of what was going on in his life. Again, he had memorized massive amounts of scripture, and at this particular point, uh, he is blind. And I'm sure what's ringing in his ears, I am Jesus. Now, I wish I could preach the whole thing again, 1 through 19, but I can't. Okay? So beginning in verse 10, let's listen to the word of the Lord because we're going to meet Ananias. Let's say this. He's a member of the church. Right? He already knows Christ and we're going to meet Ananias. Not to be confused with the one that was slain in the spirit. Right? And died in Acts chapter 5 and it's going to mention Judas as well not to be confused with Judas Iscariot but another Judas but here's the word Now there was a disciple at Damascus Damascus named Ananias the Lord said to him in a vision Ananias and he said here I am Lord He's following suit with the vision protocol like Abraham Moses Lord speaks He has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And there He has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for He, meaning Paul, He is a chosen instrument of Mine to carry My name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show Him how much He must suffer for the sake of My name. So Ananias... Departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. Taking food, he was strengthened. The Lord is going to speak to a devout man. And at this particular time, you know nothing of Ananias. But when you get to Acts chapter 22, Paul is going to give us some commentary about Ananias. It's interesting that God goes to a man that everybody respects. Because it's going to be hard to accept Saul of Tarsus. You get over into Acts 11, and you're going to see that others were fearful of Paul and he ends up landing in Antioch where they're first called Christians because that church was pretty inviting to those who were saved by grace through faith and so here's a situation where the Lord calls upon this devout man and Ananias we don't know if he's asleep or awake and that's really irrelevant but the Lord calls upon him in vision fashion and don't you love the saints of the Lord that answer affirmatively to the call and he says Lord Here I am. And then the Lord gives him a direct command. He tells him to go to the road straight. And they say that even to this day in Damascus, this is the main thoroughfare that runs from east to west in Damascus, it would be 65 for Ozark. Right? Of course, it's running north and south. But it would still be similar. This is what you would be thinking about. If you were in Birmingham, Alabama, it would be I-20, east-west. And so here is this Damascus road, of course, where this main thoroughfare, east to west, and they would have known exactly, Ananias would have known where this is. And he says, go to the house of Judas, and there you're going to find Saul of Tarsus. Tells him he'll be praying. Arise and go. He's praying now. Just stop and consider this Saul of Tarsus praying. God has providentially, through free sovereign grace, arrested this man, knocked him off his horse, and now he is praying. You know, what do you know about Pharisees? Ardent prayers. Non-stop, three times a day. Three times a day and then praying as much as possible in between. But do you think Paul's uh, prayer life had shifted? Do you think it had changed at this point from the works that you might do to stay in favor with God, to earn your way to heaven, yet now... He is wrestling with the God of eternity in a way that he never imagined before. We can only imagine the condition of his heart, the condition of his mind, as the Lord Jesus Christ, the risen one, had spoken directly to him. I think he was probably wrestling with the sense of the need for God's forgiveness, don't y'all? When you know what you've done, you've persecuted those of the way. You had, when you wasn't satisfied in Jerusalem getting Christians who had come to know Christ... Are those who had come to know the Lord. You, you're getting letters from the Sanhedrin, Caiaphas, and you're going all the way to Damascus, 150 miles away. And then you stood by when Stephen was martyred. You held the cloaks of those who threw the stones. Please, God, forgive me for standing by as one of your saints was martyred. Do you think this was going through his mind? Do you think he thought about the families? Remember the Uh, We we skip over it sometimes, but not only did he take the men, but he took the women. That means he ripped them away from his family with no care whatsoever to the children. That's the kind of ruthless man this was. I've been responsible for breaking up families and the death of people. Perhaps even the most heinous thing that he could ever imagine about Jesus becomes beautifully attractive. You know what that was? Did I remind you of that? Deuteronomy says, Cursed is the man who's hanged upon a tree. To him, a crucified Messiah made absolutely no sense. That was blasphemy. But do you think now that as he prayed, he thought about the fact that Jesus stood in his place to bear that curse. Folks, that's good preaching. You ought to have one amen come from this congregation, right? That Jesus himself would become that curse for him. And literally, that's why you're saved today if you're saved. Because Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. He bore the curse on our behalf. So Jesus reveals to Ananias that Saul would have this vision and and his name would be Ananias. And he would come in and lay hands on him that he might regain his sight. In the next chapter, there's going to be the same type of double vision working when it comes to Peter going to Cornelius. So in regard to Saul, this was preparatory. I think it's more than just physical sight. I think it is spiritual sight. Someone is coming to you. They're going to bring you the truth about who you are and the understanding of what's happened to you in your life. And I'm sure Ananias understands the magnitude of the request. Don't you think so? Here you're told to go to the Osama bin Laden of your day. I don't say that lightly. Paul was a terrorist against Christianity. Full force. 100%. Osama bin Laden of the day. You go to his home... He's going to be praying, you lay hands on this man who everybody feared that he might regain his sight. Now, Ananias gives a subtle protest, does he not? He doesn't just say, like Jonah, forget it. The one-way prophet said, I'm about to jump on a... Sh-. Notice this. Tarsus, right? Remember that? In, uh, in Jonah? But here he is. Uh, he doesn't respond like Jonah. He doesn't go cry up under a tree until, and, and wait till his gourd rots and then cry some more he actually gives a response kind of like Ezekiel when he asks the Lord, can these bones live? And the, Lord's, uh, or John, the Lord asked Ezekiel this, and Ezekiel says, only Lord, you know, which is a good theological response. He's like, okay, Lord, we know about this man. You know, kind of, are you sure that I'm the one that needs to go down here? It's a tall order. It's a subtle protest. How many of you think, do you know what an imprecatory psalm is? Does anybody know what that is? It's a psalm that is written against enemies. They're all the way through with the 150 psalms. There are psalms that say, God, destroy my enemies. Do it for your glory. Do it for your own namesake. Don't you think Ananias prayed that against Paul? You think he ever prayed an imprecatory psalm? I'm sure he did. They knew the violent nature of this man. They knew that Paul was on a mission to come to Damascus, 150 miles away with letters that they could arrest anybody that was of the way. He was in fact an enemy of God. So the word was out on this man. He's done evil to the saints. And this is what Ananias says. Right? But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints. Y'all believe that Jesus is God? Do you think Ananias believed that? Is this not an affirmation of the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ? Paul is doing this to your saints. Who do the saints belong to? Who do the saints belong to? The Lord Jesus Christ. Don't be afraid to say it. We belong to Him, which is, an, this is fascinating that Ananias will address Him in this manner. Lord. He's saying, Lord, they're speaking to they're speaking against... He, this guy is speaking against your holy ones. He even has the authority to bind those who call upon... Say it. Your name. Do you know your Old Testament? You can't know the new without the old. You've got to know parts of the old to know the new. Where does that come from? Your name comes from Joel chapter 2. It is the name of Yahweh. Jesus Christ is the preexistent, eternal, co-eternal God for all time. Amen. And here's a reference to that. With the literal name in the Greek, name meaning Hebrew, Yahweh, it's your saints. Strong statement of the deity of Christ. God's people are His saints. They're Jesus' saints. So He is a chosen instrument of mine. God says to Ananias, it's going to be okay. Don't you think there was some relief there? Chosen instrument of mine. I've got plans for this man. The literal word is he's an elect vessel. Chosen of me as an instrument specially chosen by me, for me. Notice that preposition, for me. Now, God is saying, the Christ is saying, I've put special claims on this man, and I'm going to use him in a special way. And then he says he's going to bear my name. Again, do you think that Ananias probably experienced a little bit of shock and awe at the fact that, God, you chose this man to do your work. You know, God can hit a straight lick with a crooked stick, right? Amen. Yes, he can. He saved you, didn't he? Right? He can use you to accomplish his purpose. And so there must have been an Ananias this response of, wow, God, you're going to use this particular man who has persecuted the church, who's breathing, inhaling. He's in an atmosphere of murdering those who belong to Christ. God can take an enemy. And choose them. And use them as a vessel for his own glory. Anytime he sees fit. Proverbs chapter 6 verse 4. Don't turn, just listen. The Lord has made everything for its purpose. Even the wicked for the day of trouble. God is sovereign. He can also use instruments for his glory that never knew saving love. He will bear my name. And Ananias at this point must have known that God was doing something in this man To change this man. God is doing what He does best. God moves in mysterious ways His wonders to perform. And God is working. He's going, God says, Jesus says to Ananias, He's going to make My name known before Gentiles, kings, and sons of Israel. You're going to see this fleshed out in Acts. After Acts 13, you're going to see the Apostle Paul going to the mission field for the Gentiles. You're going to see him standing before governors and kings before you get to the end of Acts. We'll get there one day. Just be patient. But we'll see that at the end of Acts, he's going to stand before them. And of course, when he bears his name before the sons of Israel, it's usually going to cause a riot. And he's going to be pushed out of these cities as he's bearing the name of Christ. So Paul, again, would have to leave in a hurry. Note this. The one who had caused... So much suffering because, uh, for the name of the one who persecuted the church, Jesus said, now I will show him how much he will suffer. Are you all tracking with me? For my name's sake. The very one who caused my saints to suffer is the one who's going to suffer for my name's sake. Now, is this retribution? Is it retribution From the Lord Jesus Christ to say, well, he's caused me a lot of suffering, or my saints. When you touch the saints, you touch Christ. And I'm about to turn around. I arrested this man, and I'm going to show him how much he'll have to suffer for my name's sake. Well, when Jesus died, folks, he died in Paul's place. When Jesus died, he died in your place, if you're saved. He paid for all of Paul's sins, past, present, and future. His plan was that Paul would suffer for the gospel's sake. Paul would suffer in the propagation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When you get over to 2 Corinthians 11.22, you can't turn as fast as me, so just listen. 2 Corinthians 11.22, listen to the word. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I am speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offsprings of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I am talking like a madman with far greater labors. Far more, okay, he's going to give you a litany of what's happened to his life. Far more imprisonments, countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger of rivers, robbers. My own people, Gentiles, in danger in city, danger in wilderness, danger in sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, and cold and exposure. Anybody getting this? Paul knew exactly he's going to see this fleshed out in his life, not in retribution form, that, that God, you punished me to suffer because of the fact that I caused your saints to suffer. That's not what it's about at all. He knew that he was called by God to suffer for his name's sake, and guess what? You are too. Maybe not at the magnitude of what Saul, what Paul suffered. Uh, listen again to how Paul views his suffering in Second Thess- Excuse me, Second Timothy two, verse 10. Let me be, let me begin in verse eight. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, The offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Do you think Paul understood something about suffering? He understood what he was living out. Jesus on the cross was the propitiation for the sins that Paul committed. But Paul's suffering was for propagation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when we suffer for the gospel, when we are suffering for the gospel, we are demonstrating that we value the gospel more than anything else in this world. Now this is foreign to Americans. We have to go take a big gulp when we think about suffering for the gospel but the gospel is promoted most when you value it most. And you know this is true. You'll die for those things you value most. And the Bible tells us that the gospel and the kingdom in Christ is like a treasure that you'll sell everything to go find and buy that field where you found that treasure. You're willing to give everything. You value Jesus more than everything else in life. And that's exactly what Paul did with every beating, with every imprisonment, days and nights, without food. He understood how he fit into God's divine plan. You're going to bear my name to the ends of the earth and you're going to do it through suffering. He knows what God has called him to do. It's very hard for that kind of evangelism and or disciple making to resonate in us in the states. A little clearer over in Asia, isn't it? Yep, it's a little bit clearer over there. Uh, Pretty clear divide between... The haves in regard to Christ and those who do not have him. The lines are blurred here in the U.S. because everybody's a Christian, right? So they say, but not everybody values the gospel. So we've got a problem here, right? We've got a problem. We need some divine introspection to see how much we value the gospel. Now, I'm sure all this was a relief to Ananias, don't you? Don't you think Ananias said, you know what, Jesus, I'm sure I'm glad you worked this out. That you've got Paul under control. You've got him arrested. And now, isn't this awesome? Ananias begins to do what church members are supposed to do when those come to Christ. You begin to minister to them. Right? And here's Ananias used by God to minister to Saul. Goes into this room where Paul is locked up. And maybe the door wasn't locked, but I'm telling you folks, he was locked up with God. He's locked up for three days. And I think he lays his hands on Saul for a number of reasons. Do you think he had much human contact in these three days? Not much. I suppose that he had very little human contact with anybody. I think it's safe to say that these were agonizing days. He's longing for assurance that God had accepted him through Christ. And Ananias was, in a sense, the hands of Jesus reaching out to Saul. I'm here to help you. I'm here to help you regain your sight. God's going to do it, but I'm an instrument. I'm giving you the Word, right? So the hands represented the hands of healing, as well as the implementation of the gift of the Holy Spirit of God. We, folks, have a like precious faith when we know Jesus as Lord more than any kind of fellowship this world knows. The fact that we're brothers and sisters in the Lord. And he calls him Brother Saul. Amazing. He walks right into the room with the Osama bin Laden of the day. He touches him and calls him Brother. Folks, that's the difference Jesus can make. Right? The Lord sent me. The one who appeared to you when you were on your way and disrupted your way. You know what, folks? You've got to understand this. Jesus will mess your life up. But he'll do it for his glory. And he'll do it in a good way. Right? But Jesus came to him on that road. And, and Ananias is reminding him of all these things. You're trying to destroy the ones of the way. Jesus appeared to you on the way. And he says, I'm here so that you receive your sight and the Holy Spirit. And the Bible says in the text that something like scales. Is that, man, that's fascinating to me. I mean, is it like a fish scale? Just pops off his eyes? Something like scales falls from his eyes. Now, Luke is given to great detail, right? You want to get to glory and say, Luke, why don't you leave this one out? What do these scales look like? Well, uh, I think Luke is ambiguous for a reason. What he wants you to think about is that the fact that he regained his sight. That's what's important. He was lost and he could not see, but now he's regained his sight. So you can imagine what things looked like when he opened his eyes. I'm sure he's seeing things a little differently. Uh, He was on the road to bring those who knew Christ back to Jerusalem. But now he opens his eyes the first time and he's looking at Ananias. Ananias. Well, Ananias is one of the ones he was going to take back, right? If he found out that he knew him. But here now, he is uh, being cared for by the very ones that he came to persecute. God changes Saul, of course. He's looking at a man that just called him brother, part of the family of God. Now, the next verse is a little troubling to me. Because I've always thought that Paul was probably a Baptist. But this is a little troubling because before he actually eats, he's baptized. Baptists would never do that, (laughs) right? We'd have to have our potluck dinner on the grounds before we followed in believer's baptism, right? Y'all know I'm kidding. But the deal is, think about that obedience. Guy hadn't eaten in three days. As we joke about, he was hangry, right? Not just hungry, but he's probably in that situation where he's hangry. Right? He's ready to eat. But he's ready to be obedient to Jesus first. So he follows in water baptism. That public testimony. Whereas we can say that circumcision was the mark of covenantal loyalty in the males in the Old Testament. Didn't save anybody. It was a significant mark. Uh, Colossians chapter 2. That sign. Baptism becomes that identifying sign. Not meritorious for salvation. But the identifying sign that you've died to self and you're alive to God. Buried with Christ, raised to walk in newness of life. He's ready to do that and he is baptized. In Acts 22, Paul is going to tell this story again. He's going to talk about Ananias. Just think about him. Just a certain man named Ananias that was used by God. Some of you in this church should think you're a certain church member that can't be used by God. Wake up! You can be used by God. In a mighty way. And here he is. Here's the guy who ministers to the greatest missionary and greatest theologian that has ever lived. And God used a certain man named Ananias to do that. Although it was the power of God working through him, enlightening the eyes, filling him with his spirit, Ananias certainly has an honored place in sacred history. Just a certain disciple. You never know what God is going to do with your life. You never know who you'll end up ministering to. Now, when it comes to conversion, we want it to be nice and neat, don't we? I mean, bang, bang, uh, regeneration, uh, faith, uh, conviction, effectual calling, new birth, faith, repentance. We want to be able to see those when we read this conversion. It's not nice and neat, is it? When did Saul actually come to know Christ? As soon as the Lord knocked him off his horse and he hit the ground? When did he come to know the Lord? It's not nice and neat. But here's what we also. But here's what we do know. It's very clear that God uh, changes this man 180 degrees. Radically got a hold to him. There's no question that he trusted Jesus Christ alone, by faith alone, through grace alone. Right? That's exactly what happens. And 180 degrees is the turn. Now, we talked about some things last week that we learned from Saul's conversion. Paul's conversion. You remember those? Here we see firsthand... Salvation is by God's free, sovereign grace. We learn that when you encounter Jesus Christ, you will be changed. There will be an encounter with Him and you will be changed. We learn the surrender aspect of it. Paul, in humility, surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we learn that God can save the worst of sinners. Amen? Today, I want you to see a few points of application further. First, we see in Saul's conversion the evidence of Christianity. In Saul's conversion, we see the very evidence of Christianity. What do we mean by that? Well, the greatest opponent of the faith becomes the greatest proponent of the faith. Folks, this could never happen apart from Jesus. This could never happen without the authentic nature of the Christian faith. Just look around in this room. If you're saved today, uh, I will say this. Just look around in this room. You're not very impressive. And neither am I. But we got an awesome God. And what He does is pretty doggone impressive. That He could take us from all walks of life. Uh, no matter the depth of your depravity, you were still totally depraved. And the issue is that God could turn around and save you. That's evidence of Christianity. Now, your, the Word trumps your experience every time. There are so many people that exegete the Scriptures with their experience instead of letting the, your experience be exegeted by the Scriptures. Scripture is... Prime, primary, predominant over any experience you may have ever had in your life. But let me remind you, salvation is an experience. Amen. And it may not ever be like Paul's experience, right? But nonetheless, nonetheless, it's essential that you experience that. And what is it? It's evidence of Christianity. The only plausible explanation from a man who one day is murdering Christians to the next day or three days later... He's a flaming evangelist for Jesus Christ. Folks, I chalked that up as evidence of Christianity. Amen. That God can change a life. What a testimony it is to the empty tomb. I almost came unglued this morning. When we were singing, O Glorious Day, that fact that the tomb is empty, folks. A dead Savior can save no one. He didn't just die. Uh, he, was, he, he was raised for our justification. The Father... Accepted the eternal sacrifice of the Son. The infinite, valuable sacrifice. And thus, accepted. That's why you have the resurrection. Right? And so what a glorious thing it is. What a testimony to the empty tomb. Additionally, we have to think about Saul's blindness. That metaphor of blindness in the evidence of Christianity. Thinking about it theologically, Saul's blindness pictured spiritual darkness and arrogance and ignorance. Which he had been living in. And it shows how wonderful and glorious the truth of Jesus is. The Bible says, you shall know the truth, and it'll set you free. Paul writes about this reality to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 4. I'm not gonna, I might miss a paraphrase it a little bit, but Satan hath blinded the eyes of those. You know that text says, just like in creation, God you spoke out of nothing and made everything ex nihilo. You spoke and everything was created. Just like that, you shine in people's hearts, the gospel. They're blinded by the enemy, but the gospel penetrates that blindness, right? That's what 2 Corinthians 4, 4-6 talks about. Though Paul was righteous in his own eyes, Philippians 3, 6, he was actually walking in spiritual darkness until Jesus arrested and transformed this man. If God has transferred you out of darkness into the kingdom of his Son, your heart ought to praise him. Evidence of Christianity. Now just imagine that if one of the Islamic terrorists stood up on trial and said, the other day someone walked by and gave me an Arabic New Testament. And last night I read John 3.16. And I stand up publicly today in my trial to tell you I've trusted Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Now what would y'all think? Hang the man! Right? That's the way we would respond. Give him due diligence for what he's done. He's a rotten, terrible, evil man, and by all standards, humanly, he deserves to die. So did you. Don't look pious at me. Don't look so spiritual. So did you deserve death. You're not saved today because you deserved it. Go ahead and chalk that up this morning. Some of you are saying, I don't deserve that kind of salvation. You're exactly right. You don't. Some of you are saying, I'm not worthy of that kind of salvation. You got that right. You're not. But Jesus saves us in spite of our unworthiness and the fact that we don't deserve it. Free, sovereign grace. Yet God could subdue any Islamic terrorist anywhere in this world right now. Do you think that Ananias prayed that God would stop Saul of Tarsus? I guarantee you he did. But I bet in a million years he never dreamed God would stop him like he stopped him. And all of it rebound to his glory. Folks, that's God. That's what Jesus Christ can do. So don't doubt the evidence of Christianity. Just look around this building. God can save the worst of sinners. Second application. Conversion involves the receiving of the Holy Spirit. No proof whatsoever right here of some kind of two-stage initiation into the Holy Spirit. Y'all remember when I taught that? I probably made some of you nervous. If you had a background other than, well, I better be nice. But anyway, if you had a background where you think that you receive the Spirit separate from salvation, there's no proof of that whatsoever in the Word of God. As a matter of fact, Ephesians 1.13 says, On the day you hear the Word, the gospel of your salvation, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And when you get to Romans chapter 8, let me flip there, listen to this. Verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you... Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Jesus. What does that mean? I guess it means for those who think you're saved, and then sometime down the line you're baptized with the Spirit, and you don't have Him in that interim time. I guess from that point on you're lost until one day you do get the Spirit, and then you become a full Christian. How does all that work? Well, Paul makes it clear. If you don't have my Spirit, you're lost. And then 1 Corinthians 12, 13 The Bible says that we have all been baptized into one Spirit. So it is here that when you trust Christ and know Him, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. If you're saved today, the Holy Spirit lives in you. Number three, when you become a new person, you also receive a new purpose. All Christians are sent on a mission to reach the gospel, to take the gospel to the spiritually blind and to tell sinners how to have forgiveness. I love Acts 26. We'll get there one day. But listen to what Paul says. We're about to land the plane. Don't get nervous on me. Okay? Acts 26, beginning in verse 16. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose. Y'all got a purpose today? Do you? Well, the number one purpose is to glorify God. But the mission is to make disciples. And here's what Paul says. the purpose of what Jesus gave to Paul. Saul was elected, not just to salvation, but for mission. It's quiet in here. With the privilege of receiving salvation comes the responsibility of making much of Jesus. In word, deed, in this broken world. And when we share this good news, we can be confident that the sovereign God of the universe will save souls. Amen? He's already told us He will to the ends of the earth. If you're a Christian, you're a chosen instrument in the hands of God to be used for mission. Now, church family, listen close. In case you hadn't figured this out, the entire Bible is a missionary book that absolutely pulsates with God's love for the nations and His intention to see people of every nation, every tribe, Every tongue kneel before Christ, throne in glory. That's what God is committed to, and He's going to do it. He's committed to it. The issue is, we need to have the same commitment level with Him. That we're going to be the vessels that God would use. Finally, conversion involves receiving a new family. Doesn't it? Don't you love the terminology of Ananias and Brother Saul and... God bringing them together, Ananias and, uh, Ananias and Paul, and the mission and the purpose and togetherness. You know, God never called the church together so we could fight, so we could ask, uh, so we could agendize, so that we could have our own preferences, padded Sunday school classrooms. well, I'm getting in trouble, right? I mean, in Baptist life, we want to make everything as comfortable as we possibly can. Why? Because we're sitting here until Jesus comes back. We're going to sit on our blessed assurance and take up space. No, folks. That's not why God saved you. If you're 10 and you know Jesus and you're 100 and you know Jesus, the mission's the same. You've been called to a family. Not to sit and soak. Not just to hang out. You got a family that God has called you to live like Bonhoeffer. We live life together under the Word. We, we are here To reach the nations for Christ. We we, we do it in Ozark. We do it in India. We do it in Guatemala. We do it all over the world. It's both and for the cause of Christ. And we're participating in that. We're partnering together. Is that what the IMB is about? I mean, I've been breathing in and out. uh, Cooperative program, IMB, Southern Baptist. My mama took me to church when I was in her womb. Right? Right? And I've been around it all my life. Look, can you, folks, there's nothing that compares to the cooperative cooperative nature of Southern Baptist churches in Missouri and all over this world that pool their funds together to send people like Kyle and Katie to India to make an impact for Jesus. Folks, think about how important that is. When you give that Lottie Moon Christmas offering, every dollar goes to support people like Kyle and Katie. I'm challenging you, let the biggest offering we've ever given to Lottie Moon be this year. Right? I mean, folks, if you value the gospel and you can't get on a plane and go, or you won't go over to your neighbor and share Jesus, which you ought to, you can definitely hold the rope when others go down in the well. And you know how you can do that? Reach in your back pocket. Right? And value that. And give it for the cause of Christ. We're a family. But we're not just here to hang out. Oh, we have sweet fellowship here, don't we? I mean, I've been here 14 months. You're an awesome church family. Love this church family. But that's not what it's all about. It's not all just about donuts and coffee. The fellowship that God gives us is surrounded in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why it's so special. Wonderful things about the body. Now, in conclusion, y'all were waiting on this, right? Here's what the passage asks us to do. Have I truly experienced conversion? Turn that light on yourself. Have I experienced conversion? Has God's sovereign grace saved my soul? Has your life been altered since you encountered Jesus? It will be altered if you have. Life-changing. Have you surrendered to Him? If you have, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. You're a new person. If, uh, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things passed away, behold, all things will become new. New purpose. New family. Praise God. A new family. We too will experience these things. And Jesus summons everybody in this room to repentance and faith and to service. Your, your conversion may not be like Saul of Tarsus. It may not be a Damascus Road experience. But the sensual experience of trusting and encountering Christ is a necessity. Right? To encounter Him. What a case study in Paul's conversion. Next week we're going to talk... Well, not next week. Brother David will preach. But after that we're going to talk about what a brand new Christian looks like. Yeah, we're going to see that. But here's a case study in Paul's conversion. Now, think with me. Do you think Jesus was patient with Saul of Tarsus? Folks, he could have killed him. Just think about how patient God was toward him. Patience. If you're lost today, and you're listening, and you're under the sound of my voice, just think how awesome it is for Christ to be patient toward you. You got to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ one more time. And you thought you just got up to come to church as usual this morning, but the truth is the God of eternity controls your steps. He's brought you to this place and with patience, he's allowed you to hear the gospel one more time. Oh, he wasn't just patient to Paul, Saul of Tarsus. He's patient to us. He allowed him to hear it. Remember what Paul said in 1st Timothy? 1 Timothy 1:15. I'm the worst of sinners. I like the NLT. I was the worst of them all. Paul looked at his life. Ooh, persecution, murdering Christians. I'm the worst of them all. But think about this. Some of you have come out of a background where you just, man, you identify with Paul. I was the worst of sinners. But here's what Paul said after he trusted Christ. I got a prize to run after. Amen? I got to lay hold of the prize that's set before me i got to forget those things which are behind. Press toward the mark of the high calling in Christ Jesus. Why? Because Paul's acceptability was based on Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. He saved a wretch like Saul and wiped the slate clean. Right? Forgave him past, present, and future. Nailed all of his sins to the cross of Calvary. Every single one of them. And he could rightly say, I'm the chief of sinners. But he could also rightly say, there's now, therefore, now no condemnation. To those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. God's grace. His saving grace has no limits. Has no limits. No matter what you've done or how vile a sinner you are. Remember the song? It can save a wretch like you. He can take a dark mind, dark heart, turn on the light anytime he wants to. He can save the worst of sinners. Jesus' blood can make the vilest sinner clean. Father, we stand in awe of the grace of Jesus. It reaches to the highest mountain. Lord, the blood of Christ to the lowest valleys. Father, you've been patient for many to hear this again this morning. Some may be lost. Lord, I pray that you would arrest them this day. May they respond in faith. Faith alone, in the grace of Jesus, to reach out to them, saving them. Lord, I pray for believers. I pray for our church. God, that we would value the gospel more than anything else in life. Value Jesus and the gospel. Father, may you accomplish this in our hearts and lives. Lord, speak to us in the time of invitation. Lord, the sermon's never over until we ask, so what? We've seen the what of Scripture and some of the so what of application, but what are we going to do with what we've heard? God, may you use it to affect change in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.